brought to some of you guys are about to go into college. You hit that interesting age where you're living in your parents' house, and yet you are on that edge of being an adult. And so there's an interesting balance there as you seek to honor your parents, and yet you want to live kind of on your own. You want to start taking those first steps um, into adulthood. But like, as far as like my family, um, I still want to honor my parents, not just because I just want to do what they say. You know, that changes a little bit when I'm older. You know, that doesn't quite doesn't quite cut it anymore. Not that like I wouldn't listen to that, but as you get older, you want to hear more reasons for why. You start to think more. Your brain becomes more developed. And ultimately, what I want to do with my parents is I want to honor them because I understand what they've done for me. And as you get older, you start to understand money more. You start to understand how much money they've spent on you, how much time. I can think of lots of times my mom had my friends over. And now I think about that, I was like, wow, that was very sacrificial. And so part of that honor comes from knowing who your parents are, the love that they have for you, the character that they've had as they raised you, and the amount of resources, time, money, you know, sacrificing their life to put you ahead of themselves. That's why I want to honor them. And that's just a picture of, not that, that's a poor example, of what we want to do with God's law for us, God's commands. We've been studying Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, talking about how Jesus Christ replaces the shadow of the law. The law was supposed to show us our sinfulness, and yet it's a hard thing for us as Christians to balance what we still follow from the law and what our position, how our position has changed in Jesus Christ. And what I want us to come away with tonight is that because of who God is and what he's done for us, changing us and saving us, we obey out of gratitude and honor instead of duty and responsibility. So, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to develop this idea of why we need to obey the Ten Commandments. It says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right off the bat, as we start this passage, we want to understand who God is. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is almighty God. He created the universe. He made promises to Abraham before. This is not just any person. He is basing his authority to give the law to Israel on who he is. And if we look back in chapter 19, we're not going to look at every single verse here, but we start to see who God is. We see God's holiness. As Israel is coming to Mount Sinai, God gives Moses instructions. He says, I know I delivered you. You kind of saw my power enacted with the ten plagues. I talked to you, Moses. You knew who I am. But I'm actually going to come down and meet with Israel at Mount Sinai. And in order to make that happen, I need you guys to be pure. And so he starts listing off requirements that they need to have. Moses puts a barricade around the base of Mount Sinai because God says, if you touch Mount Sinai, you will immediately be killed because of my holiness. I can't. I can't have sinful man coming into contact with me because my holy, my holy character, it will destroy the sin in front of me. So they had to put a barricade on there. They said that they had to um, purify themselves according to all the rituals that they would have, so cleaning themselves, um, not engaging 
in certain activities that they normally would do, not because those activities were necessarily bad, but they wanted to be focused on God. God was meeting with them. The one who had delivered them, they were going to meet him face to face. Um, and so we see God's holiness. God is who he is, his holiness, but he also is their deliverer. This is not just the God who is holy and distant. He's the God who actually came down and delivered them with the ten plagues from Egypt. And then thirdly, we see God's majesty when he came down. I don't know if you guys have ever been on the water in a big storm. Um, up in Michigan, I'll pull out my hands, um, we have the Upper Peninsula, it somewhat looks like that, if you could put that on the wall. Lower Peninsula, Upper Peninsula. And between here is the bridge. It's called the Straits of Mackinac. And you have Lake Huron and Lake Michigan coming. This is where they meet right here, right between the peninsulas. And there's a big bridge there. It's a beautiful place if you ever get to go. It's like our favorite place to go. But that water gets very choppy because you have two lakes coming at each other. So you have two different currents coming at each other, and storms brew up really quickly. Lake Superior is even worse. The one on top, I don't know if you guys ever heard about shipwrecks, it's very treacherous. And these waters can have storms. And so to get to, we go to an island that's like right off the bridge. It's really cool. There's no cars. And it's like our little family thing we do. It's a lot of fun. But to get there, you get to go on a ferry, a boat. It's about 20 minutes. And usually the water's pretty calm. It's beautiful. You see the water. You see the bridge. And the sky is clear. It's up north, real up north, not like North Carolina. <laughs> um, so it's very beautiful. But the one particular time we went, there was like 20 feet waves, and 20 foot waves, 20 feet waves, good night. Um, and so we always ride on the top of the ferry. Like you have the covered inside with the windows. It's nice and warm. My mom always stays down there. But we always used to go up on top. And we went up top that one day, and you could see the waves. You could see them coming, and you would go up, and you could see one coming down, and then you would like dip down. Like, and it's the craziest experience. And there was storm clouds. It was lightning. But it was awesome because when I was reading this passage, that's what it reminded me of. That God said that the mountain, when God came down, it was covered in black clouds with lightning coming down and fire going up. And I was thinking about being on that little tiny boat in the water and just seeing God's majesty with lightning coming down and us getting tossed around in the waves and dark clouds. And that's what it made me think of, just the majesty of God in creation. When God comes down, it is an awesome sight. This is what God is basing his authority on for chapter 20. He's saying, this is who I am. I am awesome. And the people of Israel were scared out of their minds. You know, I think if God was always like that around the children of Israel, they probably would have acted differently. Probably not out of a right heart, but just out of fear because of how God, amazing God is. And so that brings us to chapter 20, just the overview, God's holiness. He was their deliverer and he is, all power, he is almighty over all creation. We come to chapter 20. Verse 3, the first commandment, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is the most essential out of all of the commandments. If you don't have this one down, chances are you're breaking almost all of them, if not all of the rest of the nine commandments. It's a sin of idolatry, having other gods before God. And it's a small g, I use a small g there. The command is far-reaching in its scope, and every single sin that we commit comes back to a violation of this first commandment. When we lust, we put the God of self above the God of ultimate pleasure and satisfaction. When we gossip, we worship the God of self and the God of pride, or looking good, in front of the God who is humble, who is a servant, 
and who carries all of each other's burdens. Does that, does that make sense how the sin of idolatry is literally, if we scratch the surface of all of our other sins, then we usually find idolatry at the root. Um, one popular author, um, make a slight caveat here, um, he, I brought his book here. Um, he, his way of church is probably not the best way. Uh, if you have questions, feel free to come talk to me, Ben or Jordan, or even Pastor Bond. We've all read him. But this book, God's at War, speaks about the first commandment. And it speaks about idolatry in our heart. I encourage you to read it if you get a chance. But that'll flesh out even more the sin of idolatry. The author says, Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all others come from. So if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with, eventually you'll find that underneath it, it is a false god. Until that god is dethroned and the Lord God takes his rightful place, you will not have victory. Idolatry isn't an an issue. It is the issue. All roads lead to the dusty, overlooked concept of false gods. Deal with life on the glossy outer layers and you might never see it. Scratch a little, beneath, a little beneath the surface and you begin to see that it's always there under some other coat of paint. There are a hundred million different symptoms, but the issue is always idolatry. God is a jealous God. The God of holiness, the God of creation, and the God who delivered us from our sins is jealous. He has bought us with a precious price, which is the blood of his Son. And so he doesn't want to give us away. He wants us to be worshiping him alone. Um, one of the greatest pictures in the Bible, and actually like the most graphic, is found in Hosea. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book of Hosea. You should read it. Um, it's a picture of sinful Israel rebelling and leaving their first love in God. And they use the picture there of a prostitute. And that, while it's not nice language that we like to talk about, that's the way that God talks about us leaving God and chasing after our sin. Let me just read you a passage from Hosea chapter 2 says, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. So this picture of a prostitute going after all these different lovers, trying to find satisfaction and pleasure. And yet, at the same time that she thought she was providing her own well-being, God says, I was the one providing you your food. I was the one providing you your clothing. I was the one providing everything for you. And that is such a great picture of what we are when we fall in the sin of idolatry. God is the one sustaining us. The only reason we're not in hell right now is because of God's grace. And yet, we don't think that. We think that because we're out of hell, that we're living our life, that we're okay to go fall prey to other things that we want to find satisfaction in. This is very important. We could preach an entire sermon on this, so consider this as you go on from here. I'd encourage you to read Hosea, um, meditate on this commandment. Moving on, though, the second commandment, Exodus 20 says, you shall, in verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment focuses in on how we worship the one true God. We're to have one God as our focus. It should be everything. 
but the way in which we approach him is very important. Can you guys think of any passages that might even come later in Exodus of where the people of Israel worshipped God in a wrong way? Well, the golden calf. That is a perfect example of the breaking of the second commandment where Israel is trying to worship God, but instead they make an image. They form something, this graven image, and they say, that's the God that delivered you out of there. So they were trying to worship the true God, but they were doing it in a wrong way, which God had not prescribed. Um, this, you ask, how does this, um, how does this affect my life? We're not building golden calves. Um, there's things that we sometimes give, like another example would be the Ark of the Covenant. When they went to go attack the Philistines, they said, let's bring the Ark with us as kind of a spiritual good luck charm. Like, God's going to love us more if we bring this here, and we're going to have the power of God to defeat sin, um, defeat the Philistines. And while we don't do stuff like that, oftentimes, whether it's trusting in our own good works, um, trusting in the system, Colossians said that beating down our physical body has the appearance of stopping sin, but it really does not have anything good. We can trust in our own means of pleasing God. I actually overheard somebody this past week when I was sitting desk and Bob Jones, um, talking about how living a kosher lifestyle or following all the dietary laws of Leviticus helped Jesus love them more. And I sat there, I was like, <laughs> we have lots of problems with that. That sounds funny, but I wonder how often we think of, you know, maybe it's our certain place we pray in the morning, or we certain, you know, if we just read this certain passage, not that these things are bad, but we add like spiritual superpowers into things that should not be. And so that's um, one way we can break the second commandment today. Again, that's it's kind of weird. We don't usually think about it, but these are things we need to be careful of because it can very easily seep into our life. Even like reading about this stuff, I was like, hmm, there's some things I do the exact same thing. So consider, are you adding spiritual power to things that God has not prescribed? Are you trying to get to a way to God that he has not prescribed in Scripture. The third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What is the first way this comes to mind? Like, what is the first, like, the easiest way you think you can violate this? It's really simple. Bad words. Okay, saying, like, if I were to say, like, oh my God, OMG. You know, you know, you know what? You hear people say that all the time. That's like the easiest, most probably popular used or thought of way to break the third commandment. But this is so much more. Yes, that is a vast violation, but it's because of the power behind God's name. God's name is just not anything. I mean, we have names that have connotations. I think of nicknames. I've had. <laughs> Caleb wanted me to share a personal story. I used to be called Chief Rara. I don't know why that was my family's name um, because I watched like the Davy Crockett, like Buddy Ebsen, and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Fess Parker, like the Disney. This is from like the 40s. And so I wanted to be like Chief Redstick or whatever his name was. So that's what I was called. And like that has a certain connotation for my family name. It's like, you know, nobody goes around calling me that. If they call me that, I, I will do a double turn and be like, okay, what, what is going on right now? Um, that's a funny illustration, but God's name is something where if used lightly, it should, it should prick our ears up because God's name is the power to salvation. God's name is what he swore on to Exodus and ex, to, on the burning bush that he was going to fulfill all these promises. Taking God's and using God's name is not something to be done lightly. And while we may not use that as form of a curse word using Jesus' name, 
or saying, you know, oh my God. We use God's name flippantly in a lot of other areas, whether it's in our prayer, whether we kind of heap up empty phrases like, Lord, do this, Lord, you know, that type of thing. That's irreverent. Um, getting really practical, putting God's name on our plans to stamp it as a stamp of approval. God told me to do this. God told me to do that. I think it's God's will for me. We need to be very careful. I'm not saying that's wrong. It could be very well be God's will for you to do this. But he says oaths. We should not take foolish oaths. We need to be very careful about what we stamp God's name on as a way of approving our own lifestyle. And that hit a lot closer at home. So I'm thinking, about how do we apply these commandments nowadays? And I was like, mm. I've done that before, saying this is God's will for me to do this. And maybe I haven't prayed about it or I'm not sure. sure. We need to be very careful about using God's name as some, a way of approval for our way of life. The fourth and final commandment we'll look at today is the, regarding the Sabbath day. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, we talk about some misunderstood commandments, the last two, but this one I think is the most, by far the most understood, most least understood, getting wordy, apologize, um, like, we don't know what it means. Like, are we supposed to, like, still have the Sabbath day, like, Saturday? But we have it Sunday, like, in, like, the second century. Ben would probably be able to tell you this better from his church history class. Um, but with the resurrection, like, things are changing. We're like, okay, how does this apply to my life now? I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey because of what he's done for me. But how do I follow this commandment? I think stepping back from the historical, you guys can look that up and I'm sure that you can probably find ways or talk to Ben afterwards about why this is the way it is, but I think we need to look at the heart and the principles behind this commandment. Kevin Young says, when we strip away the cultural context and the case law, the main takeaway from the Mosaic Sabbath is that we must rest from our labors and trust in God. This first way this works out really practically is that we set a day aside for corporate worship with the church today. That's what they did in the Old Testament. They didn't have a church, but they would have one day set aside to worship God. And for us, we need to worship God. We set a whole day aside to come with his people, like Pastor Baum was talking about, the blood-bought group of believers that we worship with, to come to church. That is, the one, that is one way we follow the fourth commandment. We recognize that we need to stop from all of the earthly troubles that we have. There's different struggles in here. We have school, we have Chick-fil-A, we have all sorts of stuff in here that, we could, that could distract us from this, but we need to take a step back, and it shows that we actually trust on God to provide for us. We show what is important in our life by how we spend our time. Um, he lists, the one author lists some really practical examples. Um, he said, we really show, if we might say that Jesus is Lord in our life, but on Sundays we might show that soccer is Lord, or uh, football is Lord, or school is Lord, or work and money is Lord. There is so many things, and we really reveal our heart, what really makes us tick, and what we are trusting on, or seeking for satisfaction 
when we disobey the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, not setting aside a day to go to church. And this is really tough because a lot of days, Sunday afternoons, I usually have catch-up homework to do. I mean, I just to be really real with you. I mean, we can all think of things that we need to do on Sundays. And the author said, maybe we should try to plan better on Friday night, not stay up and go partying and you know, do whatever. And Saturday night, go to bed a little bit earlier, finish our homework or work on there. And so that way, Sunday night is not a collapse day where we have to like oh, get all the stuff done. It's the climax of our week because we've finished our work and we can rest and truly enjoy Jesus Christ and his body of believers. Some really practical insight from uh, a godly guy and some really challenging stuff for even me as a student. Um, but the second part of that, worship is setting aside a day to worship with the church is the overall principle of resting in Jesus. Um, we mentioned earlier about trying to work our way to God, doing things, but we can get so busy doing pharisaical, getting up, worked into this pharisaical frenzy of just doing things to make ourselves spiritual. I mean, we can get the rut of just reading Bible without meditating. We can do empty prayer where we just like let our mind wander. All this stuff trying to make ourselves close to God when instead we need to rest on Jesus' work of salvation. It's not my work that brought me near to God. It's the work of Jesus that brought me near to God. We need to rest on it. That doesn't mean this is a sermon about the law. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't do anything. But at the same time, we need to realize where our true rest comes from. It's not rest on our own work. It's rest on the work of Jesus Christ. In closing, we ask the question, why do we follow God's commandments? I hope this has been answered for you today. The reason we follow God's commandments is because of what he's done for us. It is rooted in the gospel. A true follower of Jesus will obey God's commands out of a heart of gratitude and honor and respect and humility of wow, God is so great, and I'm so small, and yet he chose to save me. I want to do everything I can to know him better and to obey him and to please him. First commandment, what idols are you guarding? God will not allow his glory to be shared with another, and he will work on you until that idol is taken down as your child, as, as God's child. Remember back to the story of Gomer. I think the, the idolatry really hit me hardest, but there's an encouraging passage in Hosea, even after that harsh, where God is going to chuck, theoretically chuck Israel out in the wilderness. He finishes by saying, Therefore, behold, I will lure her and bring her back and speak tenderly to her. There's mercy in Jesus. So if, if you really sense the idols in your life, you need to run to Jesus. While you're running away from him, and you might be far from him chasing after those idols, he will take you back. He will pursue you. Come back to him. And finally, make Jesus' make Jesus's rest your priority with his people and with himself. hope this has been a blessing to you today, um, and be thinking about how maybe this affects you as we go to small groups in just a little bit. I'll pray, and then we'll be going to game time. Dear God, we thank you um, for loving us. We thank you for being who you are. We thank you for being overall um, the creator of all um, and having everything consist through you. God, help us to have a heart to follow you. Help us to have a deep understanding of your gospel and how it affects our effort 
um, in following you. Um, help us, as and the gospel say, to take up our cross, um, deny ourselves, and follow you. Salvation is an event, but it involves a lifetime of following after you, God. So I ask you to help us to have a hatred for idols and a love for your son. In your name, amen. Thank you. Before we do that, we are going to do our Jesus is better than everything else. Oh, yes, I almost forgot about that. And we are taking you right there, and we're putting you into the document, and we will be able to have something special to kind of memorize, to, to commemorate our trip through Exodus. So no more, we'll be seeing you again. The kind of preaching really personal message was awesome, and we don't do these things. We don't follow the law of God because it makes our lives easier. That's what Christians do. The psalmist said in the book of Psalms, chapter 16, he said, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we want you to have a full life filled with joy-filled fellowship with Christ. So because of what Kevin spoke about today, why is Jesus better than everything else? He gives us guidance. He absolutely does. Yes? It's not like our work of salvation, like we're not trying to earn our salvation. Awesome, awesome. And we'll take two each message. Thank you for that one. Alright, you can follow up. Grace downstairs. I'm going to be following real quick and we'll explain it. So follow Grace and I'm going to get into her mission stuff afterwards. So good night, Grace. Kevin will be able to explain yeah. what's happening. Yes. I can explain it to you. Just follow Grace. Why are we following Grace? Grace is. Why is that necessary? Grace, Mars.